Welcome. Well, the song's going to fit right in today. Um, we're going to be in chapter 8, and let me say 8, 1 through 16, Paul summarizes and concludes all he has said. So I am going to zip right through those and all that he has said about these two realms, the two Torahs, and all these, the weak and the strong, and he's going to kind of summarize everything, and then we're going to get to verse 17 and go from 17 to the end. But I want to make sure we go through this, and as we talk about these things, two weeks ago, we ended with 8.1. And it says there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the most important conclusion is this, no condemnation. No condemnation. Don't condemn yourself for whatever it is because God does not condemn you. So as he's going through all this stuff about living in the flesh, living in the two worlds, and and all that we've looked at, and all our sinners, and no condemnation. We, We just need to continually tell ourselves that we are not condemned, no matter how many times we blow it. You're not there's no condemnation. A hundred times? No. A thousand times? No. The second thing he does in verse 2 is he says, For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This two realms and the, these Torahs and all that we've looked at, the weak and the strong, he now lets us know that really what he's talking about is two ways of life. There's a life in the flesh, which leads to sin and death. And then there's the life in the spirit, which leads to freedom and victory through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next slide. Verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds and notice, uh, you can kind of notice bold and italicize here, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for the mind set on the flesh is death, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what he tells us here is that the mind, or in there, that would also mean the heart for them, is critical to determining which way of life we live. Sue Cooper talked a little bit about this with Philippians 4.8 last week. The importance of our mind, our thoughts, and our heart to be focused on the Spirit on the things of God. 12, Romans 12 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Sometimes it feels like we're under obligation. And he's simply saying, No, 
you've been freed from that way of life. We earlier on, I think in chapter six, he said the old self was crucified with Christ. And over numerous times, as you have died with Christ, that old self is, is dead. You, you don't, we don't have to do that anymore. Now, I'm going to read from, um, this is Michael Bird, one of the folks I've been reading. And he says this, talking about this, how we, it, it has happened. We are dead. Our old self is dead. He says these words. He's talking about a state, not an ideal to aim for. As a result, the tension between spirit and flesh is not some kind of internal war waged within us with our fleshly nature battling against our spiritual nature. This may sound a little different. Let me continue. The hostility between spirit and flesh is not the hostility between two conflicting components of oneself, but two external powers vying for control over us. The struggle against sin, old habits, and temptation, and don't get me wrong, they are real, should not be construed, however, as the, as the ongoing conflict within me. Rather, the struggle denotes the forces of my old self trying to come back and regain control over me. It's not that our heart is in perpetual state of civil war within itself. Instead, it's more like our heart is a fortress that is constantly besieged by a wicked tyrant who once resided there, was defeated and exiled, yet desperately wants to get back in. That is a, that, I found that really helpful. I wish I could have typed it all and put it up there, but it would have taken me like two hours. <laughs> Next slide. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. We just sang that. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So with the two ways of life, there are two views of God. I mentioned this a few weeks back. The way of the flesh, the view of God is one as a demanding boss or slave master. The way of the spirit, our view of God is one as a loving and compassionate father. And it says that you all know that Abba Father is a term of endearment. It's like our littlest granddaughter when daddy comes home, it's da-da, da-da. It's that same sense. Now, with that said, there is a transition in the next passage, the next slide, the next verse. Now, that transition, however, comes 
is connected in the context of what has already happened. So in verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and here's the big transition, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Wow. We are heirs, we are children of God if we suffer with him. Even though we are his beloved children, we still must participate and share in his sufferings. Now that they sound a little depressing. Well, you know, we, I think we tend to think it's the bad people who should suffer. But here he's saying it's the children, the beloved children, who suffer. Now, they suffer because they suffer with him who suffered for us. Nonetheless, we suffer. Paul's going to give a brief, not a complete explanation of grief and suffering. There's four aspects, and we're going to look at those now. This is not complete, but a, he's going to look at four different aspects of this as Christians. And he's not going to give the ultimate why do we suffer answer, because that's probably not there. But he starts with this. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy be to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in context, first aspect, it is false hope to believe you can avoid suffering and pain by doing it right. Whatever it is. If you believe, because this is the way of Torah, by doing it, Right, you will avoid suffering and pain. That's the way of Torah, not the way of the Spirit. So let's take it something simple like, and I think it's our temptation, a strong temptation to believe that if we do it right, it won't go wrong. If we do it right, it can't go wrong. So you're committed to eating right, whatever that means, and exercising, so that you won't get cancer or another disease. Well, it, it'll help, but you sure can't say it won't happen. We think if I parent exactly according to the book of Proverbs, <laughs> my children will all end up behaving pretty much like Jesus, <laughs> or at least an angel. If I pray hard enough before every decision I make, I won't have any bad results with my decisions. Well, we all know none of that is true. Christ's followers will suffer because Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation. You will suffer in this world. It's part of living in the world. But notice he says here that there's hope. 
the very end of this, he, he looks at the suffering and he says, ah, compared to what is to come, it's just, there's not even worth comparing it. But he says there, that hope or glory is not revealed to us yet. And it won't be until then. We want it revealed now. <laughs> and, and we understand that. When we're suffering, we want it revealed now. But it won't be revealed until then. On the next slide, he gives the second aspect of suffering. Paul's explanation in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole creation, look at sense, groans and suffers. The created universe is suffering at this time. Part of Romans, and we've seen this, Paul continually goes, going through Romans, will continually go back to the creation story. And he's doing it again here. It's going directly back to the creation story. And there's a design pattern in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of this creation story. And several ways of saying, we say creation, alienation, new creation, or order, disorder, reorder. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And it's because of human sin the earth is broken. It is broken. It does not work as it was meant to work. I had a perfect example of that this week. We were in Florida visiting with seeing Cindy's sister and brother-in-law. And John, her brother-in-law, took me on a tour. And it's five months since the hurricane, and lots been cleaned up. <clears throat> he took me to the worst part. And along the coast where it got, the one coast where it got hit the most, there were a part, there were condo complex after condo complex, all shells. Just for a mile and a half, two miles. And four story and it's just see right through them just the concrete a hundred thousand homes and buildings in Sanibel and the coast of Fort Myers are condemned and must be destroyed a hundred thousand that would be all of the homes and buildings in Cuyahoga Falls and Stowe all have to be destroyed. Driving around was, un un it was unreal. The earth groans and suffers. Now, it wasn't that God thought, oh, those sinners there are Sanibel. No, it's, it's the earth is unable to handle human sin. And then in verse 23, it says, and not only this, 
but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the third aspect is we who are believers will have personal spiritual suffering. There is this thing inside of us that Paul says, groans, not wanting to be here, wanting to, not wanting to be the way we are here, and wanting to be the way we're supposed to be. And it groans and suffers within us. And what he says here, he gives a reason for that. He says, having the first fruits of the Spirit. And when he's talking about that, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, but what he's talking about is that what we have is we, the things he's been saying. We have justification, redemption, forgiveness. And we've been freed from the penalty of sin. However, we groan because we live in a world that is filled with the presence of sin and evil. And we must live in that world. And so we will experience the suffering that comes from living in such a world. The world is ruled, Paul has told us, by sin and death. He's already told us that in Romans. And then in verse 26, we get the fourth aspect of suffering. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Too deep for words. So notice there's creation groans, we groan, and God groans. God because what Jesus did on the cross, when we suffer, God suffers with us. God suffers with us. When we are going through something difficult, God comes alongside of us. Now, like C.S. Lewis said, when we need him the most, it feels like he locks the door and bolts it and when you get silence. That can often be our experience, but that doesn't mean that's where God is. It's very clear that God is. He, especially in reading Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. doesn't always feel that way, but that is the way it is. Next slide, 24. For in hope, now we get to hope. We have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, uh, stop right there. We want to see. We want to know why. And he says we don't. Because that is to be revealed later. We will, see, we will see, but that'll be, and then he says this, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And, and I just thought of myself, I think, that does not describe me. 
I'm honest. I don't, I mean, of course, like, oh, it'd be nice when, you know, we are all together with God. I mean, we all, we all have that sentiment. I'm not sure I could say I wait eagerly. I'm just waiting at the edge of my seat for that day. So, those are the four aspects, and now we come to the main attraction. The next slide. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a greatly loved verse. This is an often quoted verse. This verse has provided so much comfort for so many and a tremendous amount of debate, dispute, distress, and misunderstanding. And it's all because of the four words in the middle of the first line. God causes all things. And we like to pop that out and get in all kinds of debates about sovereignty, free will, and does God cause evil and suffering? I've heard that question so many times. And, and it's, it's explained like, well, he decrees it. He ordains it. I'm not sure what all those mean, but, but that, there's many who will approach it theologically that way. Then there's others. He allows it. He permits it. And I would suggest none of the above. None of the above. Like I've said numerous times here, what we talk about when we talk about Romans 8, 28, I'm not sure is what Paul's talking about. I think in context, he's not talking about the sovereignty of God and free will. I don't think he's doing that. He's not talking about God's role in evil. Is he allowing, permitting, or ordaining? I don't think he's talking about those in context, what's he talking about? Two realms, two way of life, life. The flesh, the world, the devil. A world ruled by sin and death. And I think what he's saying is a world ruled by sin and death will create suffering, will create pain. That's just what this world is. It's not about God's role in evil but about God's role in our lives when evil happens. That's what this verse is about. God's role, what God does in our lives when evil happens, however it happens. He's not answering the how it happens. He's answering the what does God do. In all things, however they happen, God goes to work for our good. That point, he goes to work. 
God does not, and this is, these are my thoughts, people disagree with this. That's fine. God does not give you cancer to make you a better person or whatever you, whatever you want to use. If, however, you get cancer, God can work through that to transform you into the image of Jesus. He can. It's also, I don't think this saying, getting cancer, whatever bad thing, is good. He's not saying that was good that that happened. Never would God say that. Michael Bird also, this is paraphrased. I like this. Hopefully you might. We do not live in the best possible world, he said, he wrote. And I would say, far from it. <laughs> Very far from it. We live in a really, really broken world. However, he said, goes on, God is always working in our lives in this realm to prepare us for the best possible world. There is a best possible world. And it's not this one. We were meant to live and created to live in that best possible world. God is preparing us, getting us ready to live in that best possible world forever with him. I think of it, Cindy and I love hiking in the mountains and our favorite thing to do is to hike to a mountain lake. And if any of you have been hiked to a mountain lake, you know, when you, you go way up there and it's just snow melt. The water is crystal clear. It's just amazing. And it's freezing cold. And you stick your feet in it and just sit there and have lunch after a, the hike. And sometimes with the mountains in the background, you can look at the water and you can see the entire mountain in the water. But you know, in one sense, that's this world. <laughs> it's a reflection. There's a lot of beauty in this world, but that beauty is only a reflection. Look up and see the real thing, and that, that's what it's going to be like. We will be like folks who only saw the reflection in a lake when we enter that best world, that best possible world. Then we will see the mountain with our own eyes. That's the hope. But it's not just about mountains. Think of our relationships, our, our healthy, our good relationships. They are just a reflection in the water of what they will be like in that best possible world. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. I'm just going to stop right there. In Romans, what is predestination, free will, and all those things about? One thing, being conformed to the image of the Son. That's what he's talking about. There, there are a lot of theological arguments we can have, but really Paul's point, 
is being conformed to the image of his son. Next slide. This is all the good part now. What shall we say then? What shall we say to these things? What things? Everything he has said up until this point. I mean, he's talking about so much stuff. Some of it makes us feel awful. Some of it makes us feel great. He says, in conclusion, if God is for us, who's against us? And what he's saying here is, we live in a world that is against us, but God is for us. Greater is he. Mega greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The things here is not stuff. He's not saying, how will he not also with him freely give us all stuffs? The things here are the things he's been talking about. Redemption, forgiveness, justification, children of God. All of that is what he freely gives us. And then he goes back to his this whole thing of the weak and the strong and judging one another and condemning, he says this. Who bring a charge against God's elect? Why do we keep judging? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? I mean, you can just, I mean, he's talking also probably about the world, but you can also see that because he's going to deal with the judging and condemning and all this stuff in the church. Who is one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. Next slide. Let's see. Oh. Thirty-five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. So he lists all of the sufferings of this world. One, I mean, you know, encapsulates them all. And he says, can any of this separate us from the love of Christ? Any of it. Is there any evil? that can cause God to stop loving us? And of course, his answer is no. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The word overwhelmingly conquered is it's a compound word. It's, it's literally hyper-conquered. We hyperconquer. Our victory is an abundant victory, but it is only partially experienced in this world. And it is and it will not be primarily experienced in human terms. I think 
It's not a worldly victory. I think we may focus too much on gaining worldly victories. But it is not. And then in closing, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will never get, for the, usually, the answer. We are looking for, maybe, to the why, but we have an ultimate answer. The ultimate answer is that nothing that has happened will happen or we could do could separate us from God's love. Absolutely nothing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love. May you help us to comprehend it and experience it in all its reality. <clears throat> to know, Lord, that there's nothing on this earth, however devastating, can remove us from your love. Your love from us. In your name we pray. Amen.
appropriate the words of a song. Oh Lord, you are so beautiful. You're everything I long for, everything I need. And now, Lord, give us eyes to see you in the sunshine and in the rain and in the eyes of every person we meet. 